You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, we are in a bit of a bunker room, but more importantly, we have come to the state that we haven't been allowed in for a very long time, and I'm excited to be here with you, Aaron Peters of Folks and Peters. Welcome. Thank you, and you're welcome. (laughs) Aaron, before we get started onto some of your beautiful buildings in brick and everything that you've done for the industry, I just wondered whether you could take us through a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. Sure, a trip down memory lane. Well, I I grew up on the Sunshine Coast, which is about an hour and a half north of here. Uh, My parents were both school teachers, but my dad, for some reason, fancied himself a farmer. So we lived on a little hobby farm, four and a half acres in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, which is pretty amazing, to be honest. It was one of those childhoods that was fairly unsupervised at different times. My brothers are quite a lot younger than me, so... With my dog as a companion, I'd go exploring creeks and crossing the road and inviting myself into people's houses and going and exploring the junkyard over the road, all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, look, it was a really interesting and I think quite a formative childhood in that sense, exploring the world, getting kicked out of the house, not a lot of screen time. Mm. Yeah, it was great. And how did you come to want to be an architect? How did architecture find you? Well told this story so many times now I didn't really want to be anything to, I, I remember leaving high school and my ambition in life was to own a stereo and that was big though back in the well stars. yeah it, in fairness yes it, <laughs> it was quite an ambition an upgrade uh, from the Sony Walkman you know yeah yes. and look if I was being really ambitious it would have been Kurt Cobain or something but you know unfortunately that role was taken um not very good guitarist or singer so look I signed up for university because I didn't want to live at home Okay. Um, and showed up, filled out the application form wrong, so ended up in the wrong course and was accepted into the wrong university having filled out the form incorrectly. So my first preference was actually to do architecture, not because I had any interest particularly in doing that, but at the University of Queensland. Through a weird coincidence that year, the entry score wasn't published in the guide. So I immediately decided that I wouldn't get in. So I therefore put... Another course, which is landscape architecture at QUT, is my first preference okay. um, because I had been told that was a way of getting into the UQ course. As it turned out, I would have got straight in at UQ. So I turned up at QUT on the first day. I hadn't read anything prepared at all. I'm not even sure if I had a pen or paper. And I just went and sat in the, the lecture theatre, felt slightly out of place. And then there was an interval period between lectures and I thought, well, I'm going to walk over to the architecture school and have a look. And it was quite a revelation. I still can't quite understand why it had such a profound effect on me, but I went into the old J-Block building and there were drawings and models scattered around from the previous year that hadn't been taken home or thrown in the bin yet. And I was just entranced by it. I thought it was incredible. And I remember having this, I think nowadays it would be called FOMO, (laughs) kind of feeling which just completely overwhelmed me and for the next six months I lobbied to get into the architecture course at QUT which eventually I successfully did. did And Aaron what was your perception of architecture before that time like before you had that revelation had you thought much? Mm, Not a lot really on the Sunshine Coast 
kind of unbeknownst to me because it wasn't a part of my upbringing at all, there was something quite exciting happening mm. in the area at that time. So the, you know, the Claire's who are now gold medalists were in their heyday on the Sunshine Coast. Their kids are about my age. John Mainwaring was there, Gabriel Poole, a whole bunch of other really exciting practices. So I don't remember being aware of that, but I do know that I had seen one or two of the Claire's buildings. Mm. I thought that were really cool. Mm. And there was a front page controversy when I was at school when a million dollars in the Austin Powers sense was yes. spent on renovating what's dubbed the loo with a view which is an old council toilet block at Malula Bar and the players had been involved in that and so there were sort of moments where it sort of penetrated into my world but I didn't really have a conception of what architects did I just really liked houses so I was really interested in buildings and one attribute that I do have is quite a good spatial memory so I can recall space very easily so maybe that sort of drew me into the fold a little bit but in terms of actual contact with architects the only thing I can ever remember was going with my uncle who was an engineer to the house of an architect that he worked with and sitting in his studio while my cousins all ran off and played in the pool he had an old drafting machine that was sort of like a CNC machine. Yeah. I've never seen one since actually, but it would it had an arm and it sort of slid across and picked up the rotary pens and drew the actual drawing. And it was just amazing. I thought that piece of tech was so cool. And I remember sitting there for you know the 20 minutes that it took for it to draw the building, waiting to see what it would do next. That's about as much of a hook as I had. It really wasn't, I didn't know. Yes, I put it on the form or should have, um, <laughs> but I until I got got my teeth into it, to be honest. And just with university and I guess the two aspects of architecture, one which is quite calculating and then the other one which is more creative and drawing, which one are you more drawn to? Yeah, I mean, you have to do both. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, I was saying earlier, I've listened to a couple of your previous interviews and those two interviewees were insistent on being and both people. <laughs> I think that is the case a lot of the time. You yeah. know, initially you get into it because you think you want to be a designer, you know, like that's the carrot. But once you realise that everything is connected, you can't get the shiny thing unless you know how to construct the parameters that will allow you to deliver that then I think your interest starts to grow and spread. And I would say now I have a much more balanced interest in a whole bunch of different things. You know, there are still some things that I don't really like doing, probably mostly related to the books and accountancy and all that sort of stuff, which I'm not very proficient at. But in terms of all the stuff that's related to actually making a building, I find all of it fascinating. And so you get through university and what was your outlook on architecture after that? I mean, I became a hardcore nerd (laughs) at uni. I think some people, well, there's going to be all sorts of different motivations for getting into architecture, but for me, it was very much like collecting Pokemon cards or something. I just got obsessed with this thing and I wanted to hang out in a treehouse with a bunch of other people who are also into architecture and just nerd out on it. You know, that's where I was at. And I was really fortunate that I met Stuart as a third year student because I think up until that point, I hadn't really connected with anyone in that way. And so going to work for Stu was amazing because he was someone that was not only equally passionate and interested in every aspect of architecture, but was also more than willing to be a really great mentor and to have an acolyte. I was an acolyte in search of a mentor. So that all worked really, really well. I did work for Stuart and Paul Owen at Owen and Vokes for three and a half years, I think. Some of it after graduation, but most of it while I was a student. So I was working full time and then doing uni through the night. Yes. Um, it's pretty, pretty full on. Yeah. So I was 
basically physically and mentally exhausted when I finished university and shortly after jumped on a plane and went overseas. So that was sort of a, a different kind of revelation because I was working in a large practice where the demands weren't quite the same, but what I was was immersed in a whole other world. And all these things that I'd seen in books and in lectures, now I could go and stand in these buildings and actually feel what they're like and walk out the door and see the context in which they sat mm. all of these kind of things start to come together so i've done what i normally do which is kind of drift away from your original question but i, mm. I, I think that more or less gives you the first five years after i left you yeah. so and but where did you go overseas so i was in london for two years yep working in a practice called allies morrison and doing a lot of master planning work okay. so i found myself within a couple of months of being there uh, flying off to a city called perm in russia they were doing a citywide master plan for, for permanent. It was a full-on place the size of Brisbane, building a massive sort of social housing tower blocks with half the facade fallen off, just lying in the ground in front of it, people still living in them. Wow. We saw some pretty amazing things there, you know, people walking essentially through what felt like a bit of a garbage dump, opening a shipping container and then driving out in a Ferrari. Potholes everywhere. Just it was, a, it, was a, it was a very strange place. I was standing in the main street um, waiting for a light to change and a man walked past with a large plastic bag mm-hmm. and I, I saw it out the corner of my eye and I looked at it again and it was the severed head of a cow in, a, oh. in this clear plastic bag and he walked about 30 metres down the road and threw it through the front window of the building. Oh, welcome to Russia. Exactly. Yeah. And I went and peered into the building because I thought that's a strange thing to do. Uh, and the building was full to the sill of the window with rubbish. This is in the main street of Perth. So that was quite an experience. So we were, we were doing this that sort of thing. You know, we did some work sort of around the UK, a little bit in Doha as well. Yes. So this really it's just a completely big experience to doing kitchens and bathrooms in Brisbane. Yeah, I was going to say because I mean, what did stand out to you going from Brisbane to London to Russia? Like from an architectural standpoint, what impact did that have? It's it's almost hard. It is a little bit difficult to remember now mm. because there's so much coming at you at the time, and then <laughs> once you absorb it, it just kind of becomes part of you. But I think for me, partly it was the, the kind of culture of the profession. Yep. So Brisbane, I think to to a degree still feels like a kind of peripheral place to me. I think most people are sort of discovering that most people feel peripheral no matter where they are. Mm. But I do think that Brisbane is more peripheral than other places in Australia, like Sydney or Melbourne, for instance, and Australia is more peripheral than Europe, I think, in terms of architectural culture. You know, the bulk of the publishing um, happens there, the kind of the publishing houses make the superstars and Mm. they tend to be Europe where mm-hmm. the publishing house so you know there, there is a kind of ecosystem there and just getting kind of close to that and mm-hmm. being able to get a sense of these venerable institutions like the ROBA and going to the bookstore and it doesn't sound like much but things like the National Trust over mm-hmm. there and visiting these amazing stately homes and picturesque landscapes all of this kind of stuff I think it just takes as I was saying earlier it takes it off the page yes. and makes it palpable you can occupy it, you can experience it, you can feel all those intangible things that you just can't get from someone telling you about it or no. a photo. That, that I think was the main thing. And also there's clearly a different economy operating over there where more money and time and care is being spent on buildings. Yes, okay. um, that's an interesting observation. There are exceptions. You know, you, you see some of the really exceptional practices in Australia like Wardles or Devak Block Jaggers or Chenchao Little, those sorts of practices who seem to be able to operate with that level of refinement generally. Mm. You know, it depends on who they're working for. But I think in Europe it's more 
widespread than it is here. Of course, I'm generalizing. I mean, you kind of have to. But, you know, in Brisbane, it, it felt like certainly at that stage for Owen and Vokes, only five, six years old at that point, we were really scraping projects where there wasn't project to be had you know we, we were kind of grafting just to try and create a practice and an opportunity for ourselves so that leap was kind of phenomenal I mean at Alice and Morrison we built a model of an entire new piece of city which was done in collaboration with maybe a dozen superstar architects from around Europe our job was just to make the model so I worked full-time for a couple of months not even making the model okay drawing pictures to send to the model maker to build the model and the model I think cost $250,000 oh wow just the model so not yeah. the consultant fees and etc cetera, etc cetera. so I mean that's kind of that's unthinkable I mean yeah. we were doing entire projects on people's houses for half of that before I went overseas right, so yeah. you know what's the lesson that I take from it I don't know <laughs> but I certainly learned something. I learned that it was possible. I learned that there was another stratosphere. Yeah. Um, and I have to ask you now, because I am curious, obviously, about the cow's head. So when you were in firm in Russia, you mentioned that you were working on some master plan stuff. Did any of that come to fruition? We were doing the job in collaboration with another practice. There was a bit of a political machination that went on and Allies Morrison were no longer working on the job very oh, okay. soon after. I did hear on the grapevine that the person who was financing it all was one sort of oligarchic individual fell out of favour and the side office was raided and essentially everyone thrown into prison. So oh. I was kind of glad we weren't working on that project anymore. Yeah, that was maybe a couple of months after we, we stopped working on it. That's probably as much as I should speculate. Yes, um, well, this has so. been one of our uh, more scandalous revelations on this podcast. <laughs> yes, we're, so. we're no longer pursuing that kind of work. <laughs> so, Aaron, five years later, you come back to Brisbane? Oh, sorry, a little, little bit sooner. So I was in Brisbane for a little bit after graduating, but three years abroad. So okay. after London, I was in Singapore for 12 months working for Kerry Hill, yeah. which is amazing, and flying to Bali every week or fortnight to work on a project there. Sounds very glamorous. Kind of isn't. No, um, it never you, is when you yeah, have to do work. <laughs> yeah, it sounds sort of amazing. But what you end up doing is instead of working nine to five, you work twenty four seven. Get exhausted. Don't see your family. But it, again, it was an amazing experience, and particularly to work for for the benefit of the, the listeners who may not know Kerry Hills, an Australian gold medalist. Um, amazing, incredible, incredible architect. Mm. Very much at the height of his powers when I was there, and and working on just phenomenal projects all around the world as well so a slightly different business model from um, Peters. Um, but again lovely to be a part of that even if it's not necessarily the model of architecture that I would wish to pursue or will ever have the opportunity to not just because of the types of jobs and the clients and all of that sort of thing and the skill of the principal architect but also you know attracted a team of really talented people as well so yeah that, that was a great what experience. was it like in Singapore at that time because they were really sort of coming out of there would have been a fascinating time to be in Singapore I don't know if it was a particularly fascinating time, but it was fascinating for me because I'd never lived in Asia before right. and I didn't know a lot about Singapore, to be honest. Okay. Um, I followed my wife there who had a postdoc job, so I wasn't intending or targeting going to Singapore. It's sort of incredible. Like there, It's ostensibly a democracy, although it's essentially a one-party democracy. Yeah. So, you know, that was sort of fascinating. So it was sort of amazing to see the way in which the government could act and work. So they're a city-state, they make a decision, the next day it's on the front page of the Times and it's, it's all positive press. So we're, we're making a highway from north to south and all these properties are being resumed and everyone loves it. It's going to be great. You know, as opposed to coming back to Australia where we have 
different kind of system and a different way of procuring projects. Mm. So that sort of the ability to work really rapidly was mm. amazing. And then there was also sort of other things that were quite challenging about it as obviously as sort of expats rather within the society, mm. people who are by and large on quite generous incomes and they have maids and drivers, et cetera, et cetera, you know, living these very lavish lifestyles. And, and yeah. you know, when that movie came out a couple of years ago, like it was very familiar which which one? To crazy, me, the crazy. Was it rich Asians? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Like, of course, it was sort of a comedy and slightly satirical, but it was the seed of something real was definitely there. Yeah. So that was sort of amazing. And we were working on Amman hotels, which are six star hotels that have been stayed over price and I could never possibly afford. So, a window, having a window into that sort of lifestyle mm. was really interesting. But then at the same time, the social security net is quite different. And, mm. you know, you see people in their 80s pushing trolleys around, collecting cardboard in the streets. And Singapore's a very wealthy country by Asian standards but still that was quite confronting and traveling and sort of working in and around Asia as well you sort of see a lot of that too so I think as an architect it begs the question for whom are you working for whom do you wish to work for whose benefit is all of this effort and energy going to and we have those same problems in Australia Mm. so I'm not I'm certainly not pretending that Singapore's a different case it's possibly just a little harder to see yeah and working in the sphere that we do I mean then we're working for billionaires now we work for people with considerably less money but they're still very comfortably wealthy people Mm -hmm. and you do have to ask yourself the question well who am I serving for whose benefit is this and and that's something that Stuart and I have been conscious of you know not that we're great evangelists or we're revolutionaries or something but we do try and keep one eye on the collective interest mm. at the same time as pursuing projects for people who are paying good money and expect to get what it is that they've asked for. So I suppose I'm sort of transitioning a little away from your question now, but we do private houses for the most part because that's the work that we can get. We have to take the work that we can get and we really enjoy doing You've it You've got a pretty well. good reputation in that area. Totally, although we don't do a lot of public work because it's quite hard to break into that. You know, it's starting to change a little bit. But in doing private houses... The approach that we have had from basically from the beginning was one of the first conversations that I had with Stu was talking about a Brisbane project or a a city-making project, this sort of idea that through small-scale incremental change, even at the scale of reopening a front veranda or reinstating the old front stairs or putting the kitchen at the front of the house rather than hidden out the back or not building over the whole garden with a new extension might be a way of, in these very small incremental ways of doing something for the city that might either preserve the city, so sort of acting as a custodian of the the, the civic values that we love about Brisbane's suburbs, or just trying to remind people of the importance of certain things. So sometimes it can come in the form of what we actually build, and other times it's a process of communicating with people, sort of trying to, it sounds really condescending, but trying to educate our clients about Mm. why they might build in a certain way and what the impacts of their behaviour might be on the street and the quality of their street multiplied over several projects and several streets becomes the quality of a neighborhood becomes the quality of the city so i think the conscience was tweaked a few times and it sort of remains tweaked Um, okay look in in small ways i suppose it does sort of bubble up to the surface in the work that we do now Mm. and you've sort of one of those architects here in queensland that's gone against the trend when you've designed in brick because obviously we're in the home of the queenslander which is Mm -hmm. beautiful with that direction what prompted that because it is considered different i mean we would we would work in brick all the time if we could (laughs) i mean we really love working 
brick. It just so happens that we're in a timber-built city, as you said, mm. um, primarily, which is not to say that Brisbane doesn't have a brick tradition because it does. It tends to be a DIY one, which is actually really interesting. So we're in West End at the moment. And West End, Highgate Hill, South Brisbane, Dutton Park traditionally have been a place where a, a lot of migrant cultures have formed communities, so Greek communities in particular around West End. So there are these really fascinating examples of masonry work in, in and around West End. You might have seen some from people just building front fences and concrete paths and things in their backyards through to people taking timber buildings and refacing them completely with masonry or sometimes just the front facade. So you get this timber Queenslander with a brick facade that's been sort of stuck on the front with some arches or something. It's really cool. It's all part of the story of Brisbane and mm. part of the story of the, the Queenslander. And when you read David Maloof, who I think had a Lebanese background, his father was never comfortable with living in this tent-like, rickety, creaky timber building. Mm. And as soon as the family acquired this sufficient level of affluence, they moved into a proper masonry house, you know. <laughs> so I think that there's always sort of been a thread there that we could tap into. And Stu and I, perhaps without knowing it, but now we're much more conscious of it, are quite contextual in our approach. So we tend to go searching in the context of what already exists to find answers. And then we kind of extrapolate solutions from what we see. So you might replicate or you might distort and adjust the existing condition to sort of find the shape or find the material or whatever it is. So when we work in masonry, we tend to do so because we've observed something about a local masonry tradition. Mm. Well, sometimes there are other reasons, but it, but it generally tends to come from looking at what already exists. And the more that we can use masonry, the better. The, the main reason we've been able to justify it, because it is maybe not in the long term, but in the short term, more expensive to build than building in timber in Brisbane. The way that we've been able to justify it often is because you can't put timber on the ground in the city. That's right, and you've characterised a lot of your work. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's probably something that we learned from Donovan Hill, though mm-hmm. they didn't use a lot of brickwork at, in the era where we were sort of mostly looking to them. And so brick and masonry have, have been ways of grounding buildings for us. And a lot of what we do, particularly because we work for a lot of young families, is to try and reconnect houses with their garden and essentially get feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's really important when you've got little kids. Mm. Um, And so the Timber Queenslander has historically been raised on stumps above the ground and there's a whole bunch of different reasons for that, but one of the primary ones is to insulate it from termite attack and also because we've got such hilly terrain in Brisbane that, you know, often it's a way of just mitigating the effects of this undulating terrain across a block that you just put it on sticks and then the floor is all level and it's, you know, nice and simple. That's often where the masonry comes in is trying to stitch things back together. I haven't heard about the termites before. I always thought it was to let the breeze through and it was cooler. That was oh, always the story. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a story about low-lying miasma clouds. Okay. Um, so I think this is like a Victorian-Georgian sort of pseudoscientific right. reason. I, I don't think anyone knows definitively, and I suspect it might be sort of multiple reasons or probably like most things in our society, it's probably economic. Okay. Um, it's probably just the quickest yeah, right. and easiest way to build, I would guess. But the termites are definitely a thing. Yeah, uh, and you don't have to leave a timber queenslander alone for too long before uh, the termites come and grab it. How have you seen masonry change over the sort of the last decade? I mean, it's far more prevalent now, particularly in Queensland, mm. where I think prior to that I spoke a little bit earlier about the Sunshine Coast School and the amazing buildings that they were doing, but they were not, to the best of my knowledge, masonry. You know, that was very much a love affair with timber mm. and that kind of timber tectonic, the big lightweight and skillion roofs and open debris and, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
And and I think it had developed to a point where people had started to lose sight of the fact that masonry was also capable of performing equally well in a subtropical environment. You just have to use it correctly. So I think in the intervening period, there was probably, uh, I guess there was a latent potential there because it's such an incredible material. So inherently beautiful, versatile. It's one of the most ancient ways of building that, that there are. And, and certainly of, of the ways that have come down to us because it endures as well. You know, we probably were as a species building in timber before we were building in mud, but we don't have any great remnant of, of that for obvious reasons. So there, there, there is this incredible tradition there to tap into. So in the last 10 years, look, there have been some seminal examples of brick buildings. So you think of Bed House by, by Donovan Hill, which is sort of one of their first four. It's a relatively late work in their practice, but one of their first four is into brick. And around the same time, we were also starting to use brick too. What's changed in the last 10 years, I think, is that both there's been some excellent examples, which I think have set the trend, and that's really been spearheaded by Adrian and Ingrid, mm. and Richards and Spence. And that, I think, has totally transformed the way that people think about masonry, and it's, and it's come hand in hand with the work that Think Brick Australia are doing. I think the awards has quite a profound impact. So whether or not that stimulated architects to use brick differently or uh, is anyone's guess, but I suspect it probably has. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that things work in Australia, it's a relatively small community. And when someone does something really interesting, it tends to have a ripple effect. Mm. You guys have featured in our awards quite considerably. For me, the architectural profession is a very awards-driven sort of community. But I'm just curious about your experience with the awards and how they're different from other awards. There are a few award programs in Australia that are a national, so you enter and it sort of immediately goes to a sort of national level as opposed to the AIA's award systems, which here start at a regional level, then go to state. It's quite arduous. <laughs> They're all great for different reasons, but one of the things I really love about Think Brick Awards is that the juries are full of spectacularly overqualified people. So when you do enter, you know that that's who you're going to be judged by, which is really wonderful. And when you do do well, it feels all the more gratifying because you know that this is a jury of people that you've hoped to emulate for a long time and they're giving you a pat on the head. So that's that's really lovely. Uh, I mean, the other thing which I, I don't think we can fail to mention is that the awards nights are fairly memorable, <laughs> I would say. You know, uh, I think the first one I went to, I was almost a little bit taken aback. There was a, I believe there were champagne bottles with fireworks coming out of the top. Oh, you went to that one, yes. I was oh, into, yeah, pyrotechnics they, back then. Yes. Yeah, and I was just sort of watching the sparks hit the ceiling <laughs> and thinking, I wonder who signed off on this. This is very... Well, I think we had to pay for a fireman just to stand <laughs> there for that whole thing, but yeah. I wanted a bit of spectacular there. <laughs> yeah, so the, the whole experience of being involved just really fun. It's great going to Melbourne. Yeah, we get to, for one night of the year, we get to feel like real celebrities. Oh, that's yeah. a lovely way to put it. That's, and there was a stormtrooper there last time. There was. So. Aaron, you have been a wonderful supporter of the industry in not only your designs, but you've done some incredible things for us personally and for our members. And I think the last time I may have seen you was in Logan when I made you get up at some ungodly hour and come down and speak to our members. So I did want to say thank you and I've loved this conversation. And we are going to end with the rapid fire questions if you're ready for those. That's fine. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? I want to say a newspaper, but the truth is I haven't held one for quite some time and I do read the news fairly regularly. Online? Uh, yeah. <laughs> for sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? 
I don't really know what any pen is, to be honest. So uh, I think a pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Read books. What is important to you, style or substance? Does anyone say style over substance? A lot of people say both, I think. Yeah, okay. Mm. Well, let's say both. Okay. <laughs> it's not meant to influence your answer. <laughs> coffee or tea? I've never drunk coffee in my life. Tea. Really? Yeah. Oh, I had an affogato once at Paul's yeah. house, but it had alcohol in it, which threw me in, but that's the most coffee I've ever had. Wow. Yep. TV shows or movies? Both. Books. <laughs> Antique or brand new? Both. Call or text? Text is more pleasurable, but call's always probably the right option. Travel back in time or into the future? Definitely back, yeah. Okay. For sure. Exterior or interior? They're one and the same. It's all connected. Video games or board games? Kind of neither, yeah. Form or function? It's all connected. Complex or simple in relation to design? Intricacy, which is kind of both. Aaron Peters, thank you very much for being on our podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.